Hello, I'm Dr. Amalia gonyas Melka, and welcome to another chapter of Womanity, Women in Unity, the program that campaigns for progress and development amongst women in Africa, and aims to celebrate women's milestone achievements in their ongoing struggle for liberation, self-emancipation, equality, human rights, democracy, and socioeconomic class division. Joining us on the line today for our series on women in the judiciary is High Court Judge Carol Sabia, who hails from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. The judiciary is an important component of the justice system, which safeguards and protects the Constitution and its values, and in doing so upholds democracy by applying the law impartially to adjudicate various disputes. In opening today's program, I'll start with a quote from Judge Vanessa Ruiz, who was with the International Association of Women Judges. And she said, by their mere presence, women judges enhance the legitimacy of the courts, sending a powerful signal that they are open and accessible to those who seek recourse to justice. Welcome to the show, Judge Sabir. Thank you very much, Doctor. Um, thank you for having me and um, good afternoon to your um, audience as well. Judge Sabir, to start with, you earned your BPROC degree and LLB, both from the University of Natal, and then you went on to become an advocate and now you serve as a High Court judge. Did you always envisage a, a legal career and eventually being part of the judiciary? Well, maybe always is too long, <laughs> but um, yes, I grew up during apartheid. So um, I saw a lot of injustices and um, we experienced it personally. And you would see it even with people that were worse off. And because I've always been someone that um, not necessarily speaks out, but um, I never accepted a less than position. I wanted to make a difference to others that were maybe not as um, outspoken about certain things. And so I grew up wanting to, to do that. Also, my father was a lawyer, so I could see um, what that did um, to people and for people. So I wanted to be in the law stream. And um, as far as um, being in the judiciary, I was told by a friend of mine from university that when we were in our third year and we were sitting in a lecture, I actually turned to her and I said to her, one day I'm going to be a judge. I forgot all about that and carried on with my work, just focusing on the day-to-day without necessarily focusing on becoming a judge. But that's what she then said when I was appointed. She said, I am so proud of you for working towards what you spoke when we were 19 years old and actually doing it. Um, so let's say yes. <laughs> that is a fantastic reflection, putting out your intention at the age of 19 and building that into your subconscious, allowing you to pursue your goals and targets. Yes, yes. It's amazing. I was actually shocked when she said that because I didn't remember it, but obviously somewhere in the back of my mind, everything was working towards that. 
Thinking for a moment on your career, what would you say have been some of the most memorable cases that you've presided over? Well, maybe interesting is not the word, but the most difficult case actually that I presided over was the one that taught me what it means to exercise justice without fear or favor. Um, and doing what's right. Um, It involved a couple that had had a child out of wedlock and um, the father was now applying to move out of the country and take the child out of the country with him. The order that I gave was that he could. That was difficult because he had acted in a way that had deprived the mother of a relationship with the child because he had money. He had taken the child away from the province where they were and kept the child away from the mother. But the unfortunate result and consequence was that at 12 years old, the only family that the child recognized was her father and her father's second wife and their child. And when the mother came to court to say, but you can't allow him to take my child out of the country because that will be an end to the relationship. The flip side was, if I let her stay behind from the only family that she knows, what is that doing to the child? So the duty on the court is to be the upper guardian of children and to always act in the best interest of the child. And this child herself had been interviewed and had said that the only people that she regards as her family are the father and the stepmother and this other child. So that was very difficult because of everything I believe in. And as a woman and seeing men um, taking away rights of women, but knowing that in these circumstances, this is the right thing to do for this child. So that was a difficult, I think it could be the most difficult case that that I've had to preside over because of what was the right decision to make. As you say, your job is to have the upper hand to uphold the law and make the right decision in the best interests of the child. Yes, yes. Um, Another interesting case for me, because it was about allowing the law degree that is offered by Varsity College to be recognized as a valid law degree. That was nice for me in showing the power that we actually have to make a difference, a real difference in people's lives. Because what that case had was that Varsity College was allowed to offer the law degree. But when the children finished or when the students finished and they were looking for work, that degree was not being recognized as a valid law degree that entitles them to serve articles and to do pupillage and to become attorneys and advocates. When I made the judgment that that degree is a valid degree and is equal to the law degrees offered by traditional universities, it made a change in so many people's lives. So um, that, that was interesting for me. Absolutely. Being practical, being able to serve the needs of the population uh, it must be very rewarding 
in those circumstances to be able to affect change? Yes, but it's also very, um, it's very sobering because when you recognize the power that you have, then you must make sure <laughs> that you use your powers for good, as it were, um, and, and not to advance yourself, um, but to advance the interests of, of society. Thinking about that notion of power, I think that the ability to change legislation or to develop laws is very important. And if we think about women in particular being able to advance their rights, it's sometimes hard to realize that only 26 years ago in 1996, when the Bill of Rights was introduced, that all women in South Africa were formally recognized as equal citizens. So in your view, what would you say are some of the important equality gains, recent equality gains that women have attained? Um, There are the small things that people are not aware of. For example, black women couldn't own property. (laughs) You you needed your, your husband. Um, to co-sign and you needed to have a husband in order to have um, property. So it's things like that. Um, One of the interesting things that I saw as an equality right that maybe other people won't see it that way was um, I remember when we had the first female primetime newsreader. And that happened to be a black woman as well. So that's that's a small thing, but it's a big thing. It happened at the time when I was in university. Our white male lecturer had already told us that whatever happens, there are things that will just never change. And then in that year, and, and he had even spoken about um, women, we must watch the news and we'll see that um the women that are news readers are not in the prime time news. They are in the other news that people won't really watch, but not in the prime time slot. And then there was a lady, Kanye Lomo. People know her for her later achievements. But for me, her biggest achievement was when we saw her, a black Zulu woman, reading English news at prime time. <laughs> so um, that's that's just one of those things that I saw as a huge thing that, wow, so even this is now open to women <laughs> because women were not credible. So you couldn't trust women to deliver the real news. It needed to be done by a man wearing a tie. So there are those things. And then there's, of course, the the equal pay um, that we now get. There's the now extended maternity benefits that people have. And um, the fact that we can have this discussion (laughs) um, and, and speak about women issues and speak about things that are meant to empower other women, that alone is, is, is an advancement. So we've gained a whole lot of rights that, are, that were usually not available um, to women. And um, women own soccer clubs, women are CEOs. Um, and I don't want to downplay the role of women. Women can now choose 
whether they want to stay at home or go to work, um, which wasn't an readily available option back in the day. So those are some of those um, that, that, I, that I have seen. And the recognition that there are women-headed um, households and recognizing the assistance and their validity, their rights to own, again, even to own property, but even to inherit, um, because th- that was also not a thing. My own grandfather would have left his property to his son um, if the son predeceased him to the son's son and not the gold children that he had. Those are wonderful examples within this generation that have changed and it just shows such a big impact. And for me, the importance of law, the importance of taking equality seriously. And as you said, for instance, with Kanye Nglomo, I mean, she was a young woman at the time when she was on the screens and she brought in a role modeling effect to the entire country of being able to look on the screen seeing somebody that looks like them and acknowledging that you can do alternative things and women can be everywhere. Yes. Today, we're talking to High Court Judge Carol Sabir from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Judge Sabir, recently in the US, there was the Roe versus Wade abortion law which had been passed 50 years ago and has now been overturned. Some people have described this as a huge blow to women's rights. One of the issues that concerns me about the overturning of this ruling is the idea that women's rights can regress. So I don't want to really go into the the topic of Roe versus Wade. It's more about the issue of how we can ensure that women's hard-earned rights are not taken away? Um, Well, everyone has been saying since it first came out that South Africa is the most progressive constitution. So fortunately, in South Africa, we have that constitution that guarantees certain rights. So for example, not to, not to dwell too much on the abortion issue, but in South Africa, there's actually an act that was enacted by parliament that um, I think it's called the choice on termination of pregnancy that makes that kind of right something that can't be taken away or can't easily be taken away. But it's more that people must be made to understand the good that having the rights achieves. And that's the important thing in teaching people about the importance of the rights. And uh, I'll go back to the constitution. Our constitution recognizes equality and recognizes that no person, gender is not a determinant of who is a better person or who must be given more, um, more of a platform or is more significant. But also for judges, I think it's very important um, that they recognize and in giving judgments that there is an emphasis on why this must be kept going and why this is important. So in South Africa, 
I want to believe that as long as there are women occupying the right positions, the high positions, using our voices, refusing to back down, remembering where we're coming from. I, I think it's very important to remember where we come from so that we don't take these things for granted and we work hard at protecting what has been achieved. For me, the biggest thing is to not back down and keep the fight going so that those that have gone before us and fought hard for us to be where we are, we don't let them down and that we continue where they left off so that none of it is in vain. So yes, it's still going to be a struggle to attain some of those rights that are even guaranteed in the constitution because they're there in the constitution, but we as a society are not there. And, and I think judges play an important role in, in highlighting the significance of those rights and the importance. And that dovetails onto the next question that I wanted to ask you about one when we spoke about having women occupying positions of, of prominence where they're doing things that matter and reflect on society. Do you consider that having more women in the justice value chain leads to decisions and public policies which are perhaps more considerate of issues that affect women? So be that issues of equal pay, um, opportunities for promotion or overcoming employment discrimination? Yes, I think so. I, I think definitely because there's a question of, re of relatability, firstly, but I think even for the other judges to see the women judges and to start seeing women not as just victims of GBV, victims, it changes the way they look at women and how they approach the situations. So whereas they would um, maybe be facing a case dealing with um, someone complaining about equal pay, when they work with someone who is also a woman and they can see that the efforts and the work that is being done by the woman is deserving of a similar pay, <laughs> that alone will even change the way that the men approach other women that come before them. So I think it, it helps everyone. When, when you put a woman in power, there is that element of the relatability. People don't come to court. People don't report what happens to them because they are afraid of what is going to happen to, in court, how they will be treated and how they will be received. And seeing the women being in those positions encourages people to know that even if I lose, but I got a fair hearing, I did not arrive with a person that already had a typical or a certain mindset. So for me, it's, it's important. And it's important not just um, in the judiciary, but in every place. If you see someone that is doing the job and doing it well, it means you, you're not just dismissive to other people that are seeking to do the same thing because they, you now have an example, as it were, that women are capable, women are hardworking, women will not let the job down, as it were, or bring down the standard. One thing that I've found across the spectrum is that women 
are not necessarily recognized equally everywhere. And if we look at positions of, of power, I would say we are certainly from a South African point of view winning in the political game. If we look at um, positions in cabinet, we're really at a, a 50-50. But in looking at statistics, for instance, of CEOs on the JSC, there's, there's less than 5% women. And if we turn towards your profession within the, the judiciary space, in 2016, there were stats which indicated that 37% of judges were women. By 2020, this increased by five percentage points and is sitting at 42%. And in conversations with your colleagues throughout the show, we've been aware of the South African chapter of the International Association of Women's Judges. And part of that vehicle's aim is about developing capability and capacity to help equip female judges. What else do you think needs to be done to increase the representation of female judges in South Africa? Firstly, I will start by saying that we who are already judges need to do a good job so that we, we set a good example and, and we show that um, bringing a woman judge is a good thing that's that's needed. But also it's important for me, I think that mentorship programs are very important. Um, when a person has a desire to, to do something bigger, to make a change, it's important to nurture that and encourage that in every way that is possible. So there is formal mentorship, but there's also informal mentorships. Firstly, we, would, we should start at universities for those that have already made the decision to study law. There should be more interactions with people in practice so that the students are not discouraged from their dreams. And it's important that we also make it clear how much work is involved and how much power you get to yield so that people know from an early, an early stage what they are in for. And it must be something that they are willing to say, regardless of the pay and those kinds of things, this is what I want to do. And once they have made that decision, I believe that there should be more and more engagements with those kinds of people. And also don't put in unnecessary hurdles um, for people to get to the position. I believe that um, it's important in the professional settings, um, for example, for with attorneys and, and things like that, to also have groups that are meant for mentoring of women that want to be judges. Talking about mentoring, you're somebody who walks the talk and you've mentored several law pupils Please tell us about this experience and how your mentees have received this knowledge and the, the link, because obviously they've still got access to you. Yes, yes. Um, and that's something else. Um, let me just start with that. What you said at the end is that um, my growth becomes not just about me but their growth as well, because before they were being mentored by an advocate, they are now being mentored at a higher level. 
So we must always be aware of the influence that we have on others. But what I found with mentorship and what I love about it is that the person that you are mentoring gets to know that they are not the only one that are going through certain things. And they get to see that if you persevere and you work hard, this is where you'll go. So I encourage a lot of sharing their difficulties without necessarily providing a solution. So being there to share the experience, allow them to work through what they think is the right way um, of dealing with a, a certain situation. For example, someone will say, I'm doing articles. It's so painful. They are treating me badly. They're giving me so much work. And, and I'll allow them to vent, but then I'll say, unfortunately, that's the nature of articles. <laughs> so you, you can't change that that is happening. You can change how you approach it because that is what you need for your growth. The grilling that they put you through will make you stronger and is what you need for your future growth in the legal profession. Sometimes it means that you adjust the shoulder to cry on. Sometimes it means they're looking at their experiences in a negative way and you have to work with them to see it in a positive light and to keep their eye on the prize because that's very important. When you encounter difficulties, et cetera, you start thinking, is this worth it? My job is to show them that yes, it's worth it. Everything is worth it because in the end, um, you'll get to where you want to. My one mentee said, seeing me every day, arriving at a certain time, sitting down and getting on with the work until it was time to leave, gave her a certain kind of work ethic to see that I earn my weekends, I earn my breaks because when I'm at work, I work. A mentorship is, is very personal. They get to see you when you are going through problems at home and they get to see you working through the problems at home while being 100% effective at work. For me, it's so important. It, it teaches you what is possible. Well, we really applaud your ability to give back to the legal fraternity and to grow young people into their profession. You are listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and today we're talking to High Court Judge Carol Sabir from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Judge Sabir, we've spoken in the previous segments a lot about your career, a lot about the legal system itself. Turning towards more of a personal point of view, the juggle between developing a successful career and maintaining a household, being a mom, being a wife, being an active member of family has always been a controversial issue for women. Firstly, please tell us how you see this. Um, well, it's a rewarding thing when you are able to achieve uh, a form of balance. Um, but I must say, there's a lot of hurdles um, that you come across. When I started out as an advocate, I was told that because I already, I was married when I started out as an advocate, I was told, well, you must prepare yourself. Either you will 
thrive as an advocate or you will thrive as a wife, but you won't succeed at both. And even on the, in that year, two of my colleagues, uh, female colleagues got divorced. And I was told it's the nature of the work. You can't have it all. And um, if you are a woman at the bar, you cannot have a family as well. So it, it wasn't a great start, a nice welcome. But um, what I did find is that it is possible. Um, my sister does not agree with me that you can have it all, but I say that you can um, simply because it's a question of your priorities, changing priorities in the stages of your life. For example, when your children are small, you can actually achieve more in your professional life because during the day they are at school, you are at work working. And because when you get home, you get home and you are a mom, you are a full-time mom when you get home and you do your supper, you do homework, you do everything, but then they go to sleep. And when they go to sleep, you put in an additional hour of work to make sure that you are up to date with your work. And you put in another hour of um, either in the morning or in the evening, focusing on your interest, something that is um, rewarding to you so that you don't feel that you are left behind as an individual. It's not an easy thing to do to achieve the balance, but it's, um, I found that when you have a, a good support structure, my husband is grudgingly supportive <laughs> because he understands that my growth is our growth, but he understands that it means giving up some of the time that would be his time for the growth of, of the family. But it's not a giving up of time. It's a, a question of making sure that you prioritize different things at different times to ensure that everything is fed and that you don't feel, even for yourself, that you achieved success at the expense of family or, um, or the other way around. So I, I found it doable as long as you prioritize and you are flexible in changing what must take top priority at a given point. That's such a great learning. And what I always appreciate about the show is that everybody brings a different formula to the table about how they cope. And I think that your approach is really interesting of reprioritizing and that when you are in one node, that you are 100% in that node and that's the focal point and then you move on to achieve your, your other elements. I want to ask you about your personal journey and some of the factors behind your success. Many of our guests who've reached tremendous achievements in their lifetimes speak about faith, focus, discipline, and values. In your opinion, what would you say have been some of your key drivers to success? Um, it's not in order of um, importance, but um, the, the fear of failure 
I, I don't want to fail. <laughs> so that means that I always put, I always do my best because I don't want to fail. I don't want to fail because of how it feels for me, but also because my failure is never about me just failing alone. It always has an, in, an impact on others as well. My faith is a pivotal part of me. Um, I pray every day. I pray about how I treat people that come to court. Um, I, I pray to treat everyone with kindness and respect. Um, for me, the other thing is a, a good support structure that shares the vision. We are with a person that is making a change. Those people that remind me that it's important what I'm doing and it's important to not only myself, but for the millions of people <laughs> whose lives we are changing with everything that we do. Those are the main things that, that have been um, my driver and to show that it's doable. You know, when I was appointed as a judge, a friend of mine phoned and said, our daughters now have a role model. <laughs> that was such a scary but real thing for me to realize that as I mentioned, the Kanye Zomos, there are other people that know where I come from. To see me as a judge makes it a reality for them as well. Talking about backgrounds, please share with us a few of the pivotal moments in your life when you were growing up. Well, in 1991, I was 16 and in grade 11. And as you can tell, during apartheid, there was a program that was preparing us for the imminent integration that was coming. And it was called the Edu Train. Um, it was a train that actually moved from one province to another. And um, they had grade 11s from different backgrounds, different race groups. Um, it was the first time that we interacted with other people of other races, but it was nice because we were all grade 11s. It changed our focus. It opened my eyes to see that contrary to what we had been raised to believe that Black people are inferior, we saw that the grade 11 is like me, facing similar problems. And we also found that we can work together. And that was a huge thing for someone in grade 11 living in apartheid because it was still apartheid. We were still not allowed to go to the beach. But um, to be able to be exposed to that at a crucial time, it changed what was possible for me. That's one moment. Unfortunately, the other one was uh, when my father died. So I said that my father was a lawyer. Unfortunately, my father passed away when I was in my first year of my junior degree <laughs> studying law. And um, until that point, in as much as we were living in apartheid, I had lived a very comfortable life within the confines of apartheid. And at that point, um, I had just turned 18. It was a month after I had turned 18. And I had to learn 
to adjust to changing circumstances. And I had to dig deep and find what is the real drive and what I can achieve now without the crutch of having the, the lawyer father that will open the doors and make my life easier. And it brought out of me what I was capable of and whether my desire to study law was as real as what I had thought when my father was around and it was going to be easy. But that's when I realized um, what I am made of. And it taught me to be strong and to strive after what I want in life. Thank you for sharing those poignant moments of your life with us. Judge Sabir, as we close out today's conversation in recognition of Women's Month, please can you share a few words of inspiration that you'd like to pass on to girls and women who are listening to us? Well, um, I hope this is inspirational. (laughs) For me, one of the biggest things was not accepting when people say you can't. That is a thing that I would want to instill in every person. Never accept a, a different voice telling you what you cannot do. Believe in yourself and do your best, whatever the circumstances. And when you fail, and, and please be clear, I didn't say if you fail. I said, when you fail, cry and then pick yourself up. And sometimes it might mean go be, going back to the drawing board. Sometimes it might just mean picking up and just going at it again. So, um, but never accept the, 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 the failure as the, the final answer. Um, you are able. No one can tell you what you are not able to do. You are able to do everything that you put your mind to as long as you work hard at it and as long as you are determined and you are doing it for the right reasons. Thank you for that very powerful message that is really speaking to the heart as well as speaking to your experience. It's been a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me, Dr. Amalea. I look forward to listening to other engagements with other ladies. Thank you. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity, and we have been talking to High Court Judge Carol Sabir from the KwaZulu-Natal Division of the High Court. Mm-hmm.